Good evening. It's good to be speaking to you again this evening. I know that we've had a number of people sick lately, and so it's, it's great to see those of you who are able to get out this evening. We certainly appreciate your attendance. Um, this evening, the lesson I've titled, We're Members, But Why? So Sean lately has talked some about the universal church versus the local church. I think this will fit alongside that. Um, we're going to talk about the idea of placing membership. Should we place membership with a local congregation? You'll hear it referred to with some other terms as well. Some might say they identify with a congregation or they're associated with a congregation. And all talking about roughly the same thing. So we have a, a number of habits and practices that over time they can become so second nature that we might forget. Why do we do that? Do we need to do that? Is it just something we happen to do, or is there more to it than that? So it's good from time to time to take a step back and evaluate why we do certain things. And also, this is a topic that comes up. Um, I'm aware that some of you have had conversations in the last couple of years with people talking about whether or not it's necessary to place membership. And so if, if the topic's going to come up, it's good to talk about it occasionally and be familiar with it. Another reason for the study, or another benefit we can perhaps draw from the study this evening, we could view this as just an application of the principles of authority. We'll talk about in sermons or in class from time to time, discerning Bible authority. Those things like noticing commands and examples and necessary inference when you know Scripture doesn't come out and say something, but it's just unavoidably implied and you got to go there. Um, principles like respecting the silence of the scriptures. And so we'll get familiar with those concepts. It's sometimes a different exercise to take a step back and try to apply those. Okay, let's look at a topic, maybe a little bit obscure. How do we stretch those brain muscles, apply those principles of authority, and figure out what about this situation? So perhaps that's some value we can get from this also. So let's see if I remember which button on the clicker. Yes, got the right button on the first try. Off to a good start. So why do we do this? Uh, some would tell us that the idea of placing membership, it's, it's just a tradition. They'd say it's not necessarily bad, but they think someone came up with the idea at some point, people started doing it, it's okay. Don't bind it on other people. If someone doesn't want to do that, then you ought to just let that be and, and not suggest they need to. I would not, you know, subscribe to that view. Alternative view is that people say that it's more than a tradition. It's something that's necessary and that it originates from Scripture. That's the position that I would advocate. We'll be looking at that this evening. So, of course, there, there is no passage that says, Thou shalt officially place membership with some congregation. It, it doesn't come out and state it quite so clearly. But what we'll find this evening is that the idea is hinted at and implied across a variety of scriptures. And we have an example of it. I think there's plenty to establish the idea that this is something that we ought to be doing. So let's start with the primary example where I think most of you are probably expecting us to go 
place where our scripture reading came from. Acts chapter 9. So in Acts chapter 9, we're talking about Saul, who would later be known as the Apostle Paul. But Acts chapter 9 starts off with saying that he's breathing threats and murder towards the Christians. He's persecuting Christians. He's received letters from the synagogue to arrest Christians, and he's actively persecuting Christians as much as he can. In verse 4, the Lord appears to him and strikes him blind. He's left blind for three days. Then in verse 10, Ananias is sent to him. In verse 18, Saul is baptized. In verse 20, he's proclaiming Jesus. Verse 23 says that this continues for many days, Saul's teaching. Verse 25, he escapes by night. The Jews are trying to kill him. Then we come to verse 26, and it says that he, when he had come to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, and they were afraid of him. I think considering how this chapter started, we can all understand why they're afraid of him. Because they were not believing he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him, brought him to the apostles, and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, how he had talked to him, how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was then moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. He was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. So when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, going on in the fear of the Lord and going in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. So I really like that term associate. In the New American Standard, it says that he tried repeatedly to associate. Some other translations say he tried to join. If we look at the Greek on that term, it is, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but we'll call it, uh, where did that go? Kaleo. It means to glue, to glue together, fasten together, to cement, to join, or fasten firmly, to join oneself to, to cleave to. This is something more than hanging out with some friends after work and talking about sports. This is a close relationship. That song we just sang, Blessed Be the Tie, that's what Saul was looking for. He wanted to have a close relationship with the congregation there in Jerusalem. New American Standard says he repeatedly tried to associate. The, the translators for the New American Standard thought that the Greek implied some repetition here. We know that there was at least a bit of persistence because he tried to associate with them, and then you know Barnabas had to follow up. There was some resistance, and so there was perseverance through that resistance. So he definitely tried and continued to try to associate with them. We can learn a little bit about this relationship from this, that Paul felt the need to establish this relationship, felt strongly enough that he kept trying. We can also notice that it's a mutual decision, right? Paul, Saul, I keep wanting to call him Paul. That's how we knew him later in his life. Saul could not just unilaterally declare, I'm a Christian here. He went to them and tried to associate with them. And then they had to consent to it or not. Um, and of course, as we noted, they initially refused. 
And so they come to this impasse. Saul wants to be identified with the congregation. The congregation is saying no, and they're at this impasse. I think we can learn quite a bit from how that impasse was resolved. No one goes to Saul and says, you're being silly. Why are you upsetting these people over nothing? It doesn't matter. Just drop it, right? No one disputes Saul's attempt or the need for Saul's attempt to associate with them. And also the disciples, there's no rebuke of them. No one tells the disciples, look, you have no right to tell him no. If he wants to be a Christian with you, you have to say yes. In fact, the the resolution comes from clarifying the facts. They were concerned about whether or not he's truly a Christian. The resolution of that impasse comes from Barnabas clarifying that he really has done an about-face. He is not the person he was many days ago. So that that resolution confirms, or it corroborates that this is a real thing, that it's important. They resolved the disagreement without minimizing Saul's position, without minimizing the church's position. They simply needed to clarify the facts. And so that resolution is consistent with the idea of there really being something here. So we have this example of Saul trying to associate with the congregation. Of course, some people today try to minimize examples that we find in Scripture. They'll say, well, it's a fine thing to do, but it's not necessarily an obligation. You might hear phrases like, it's descriptive, but not prescriptive. And whenever that comes up, I immediately want to go to 1 Corinthians 11.1, where Paul says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. If you imitate someone, you're following their example, right? So Jesus set an example. Paul's imitating that. Paul sets an example. He's telling us to imitate his example. But he's talking about examples, but he's giving us an instruction. He is telling us to follow his example. If an apostle tells us to do something, is that not a command? So... Paul basically commands us to follow the examples that we see. So, of course, we we need to be respectful towards those examples. So, from here on, we're going to look at passages that are a bit less direct. We can notice some things about tone, how they refer to people. Then, after that, we'll notice some passages that really need the idea of membership being clear. Passages where we have responsibilities for us, for elders, for whoever, and for us to understand and apply those instructions we're given, we really need to have some clarity on the local membership. So continuing on in Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9, Paul is writing to the Colossians. He is about to send them two people to clarify what's going on. Um, So starting in verse 7, it says, As to my affairs, Titicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant of the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know our circumstances and may be encouraged and, and may encourage your hearts. And with him is Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, 
who is one of your own. They will inform you about the whole situation here. Paul is sending two people to update the church at Colossae on what's going on. Titicus needs some explanation. He says why he's sending him is to bring them information for that very purpose. And then Onesimus is referred to as faithful brother and one of your own. It's not, you know him, it's not, you've met him, it's not, hey, he happens to worship with you. Instead, it's saying, you know, he's yours. It's one of your own. Um, the Greek there behind that word can be translated of you, from you, of yourself. We're sending you Onesimus, who is of you guys. Um, again, kind of implying that, that closeness. So now as we continue on, some passages imply membership. Um, weird thing about these passages we're about to look at, we don't normally think about these passages as focusing on membership, or are we members, are we not members? Um, but what we'll notice is that these passages are kind of difficult to sort out and make sense of if we reject the idea of being members of a local congregation and recognizing that. And a, a, a statement I, I keep coming back to, I'd suggest to you that the New Testament repeatedly implies that there's a mutually agreed relationship, like what we saw with Saul there. We can call it placing membership, we can call it identifying with or associating with, call it whatever you'd like, but there's something there. And if we acknowledge that something, these other passages that we're about to start looking at, they fit together neatly. We know what they mean. We know how to apply them. If we don't acknowledge that relationship, then some of these other passages, they become uncertain, and we're not so clear on what they mean. So I think many of you are aware, I, my profession, I'm a software engineer. We, we sort out a lot of complicated problems, and when you're dealing with multiple possible explanations, a good way to sort it out is to just let's let's pick one, try to run it through all the situations we can, and see what breaks. Does it work? Does it make a mess of things? And so we'll kind of be taking that approach somewhat this evening as we look at some of these other passages and try to think, well, if we accept this idea of local membership, placing membership with a congregation, we know exactly what they mean. If we reject that notion, it gets complicated. Uh, okay, so continuing on, let's look at the responsibility of elders from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Peter writes, Therefore I urge elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and one who is also a fellow partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not with greed, but with eagerness, nor as domineering over those assigned to your care, but by proving to be examples to the flock. So this passage is about being an elder. It's instructions for elders. Who's that flock? If we accept the idea of there being a local membership and who is 
local members, then this is obvious to the point of being silly, right? It's, it's that local congregation. If we reject that idea, if we reject any notion of any formality on who comprises the local membership, then we start running into some weird questions that might seem silly, but they're kind of unavoidable. Um, is it whoever happens to come this week? Is it, is it visitors? If someone visits once, do the elders have an obligation? Now, of course, we want to reach out to visitors. We want to try to help them. But if someone visits and the elders don't, you know, effectively force themselves upon them, I mean, are they negligent? At, at what point are the elders under a specific responsibility for transient people who come and go? Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, that's interesting. Doesn't feel like much of a problem. You know, Dennis, Dave, Joe, it, they'll come up with something, but you might be thinking, it's not my problem. I don't need to worry about it. Doesn't seem like that big a deal. Yeah, I thought <laughs> you might feel that way. Just wait, we'll make it your problem. So, <laughs> so this relationship between elders and the congregation it has responsibilities in both directions. What about Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17? Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. First, let's clear up some basic, basic facts here. This is not talking about political leaders. It says they watch out for your soul. That's not the mayor, it's not the governor, it's not the president. They might watch out for your physical safety and security. They're not watching out for your soul. So when it talks about people who watch out for your soul, who rule over you, as the phrase goes, that's talking about the elders. So when does that apply? When does that apply to you? Now, if you've been here a long time, you still might think, Easy question, right? No question here, but if that's what you're thinking, you are assuming, or your understanding is heavily influenced by thinking there's some formality to the local membership. What about when you visit somewhere? What about when you travel? You attend a church, there's elders there. When you pull into the parking lot, does this apply to you? When you step into the building? When you sit down, if you decide to come back, visit several times. I mean, it, it's kind of silly to think about this, but some of these obligations here would need a lot more clarification if you say there's no formality to who's a local member, there's no detail there. Um, if we want to say that it's just, you know, attend wherever you want and there's nothing to establish any, any boundaries for the local congregation. Essentially, I guess what I'm asking is, does this obligation sneak up on you without warning? At what point does it apply? Now, of course, if we recognize that the example Paul was setting for us in Acts chapter 9 that we noticed earlier, where he tried to associate with that congregation, answer is very obvious, right? Mutually agreed relationship there. Uh, let's see. So as I mentioned a moment ago, you know, I'd suggest the New Testament repeatedly implies there's a mutually agreed relationship. You can call it placing membership or other terms. 
But there's something there. And if we acknowledge that, all these other passages, very simple, very easy to apply, at least the boundaries of who is the flock and what, what elders is someone subject to. Uh, let's continue on. Church discipline, this idea of when someone is engaging in flagrant sin and the congregation has to withdraw from them, as, as the term goes. 1 Corinthians 5.12 says, uh, Paul was writing to Corinthians, for what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from you the evil person. Who is outside? Who is inside? Who is the congregation supposed to judge? That is the question with significant consequences. If we acknowledge the idea of local membership, then the concept of church discipline, at least who might be subject to that, is pretty straightforward. So there's terms like putting away, withdrawing from. It indicates severing that relationship. So someone has entered into that relationship with the congregation. They are a member there. And when church discipline comes into play, it's talking about severing that relationship. If we reject any notion of you know, placing membership with a congregation or any formality on who is or is not a member, then it kind of starts getting messy again, right? We don't withdraw from visitors. If, if someone visits and you know that they're living a life of rampant sin, are we negligent for that? Like, silly questions. How, how many times would someone visit before we ought to start thinking about that? becomes a list of questions that are hard to sort out. When we withdraw from someone, I've never heard people suggest, lock the door, don't let them in. Well, someone's withdrawn from, don't you want them to come back? Don't you want them to reestablish that relationship? Wouldn't you like them to visit? If there's not a meaningful difference between members and visitors, then what exactly is changing throughout that? So let's continue on. Let's talk a little bit about elder and deacon selection. So in Acts 6, verses 2 and 3, it says, The twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Instead, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. That is talking about designating some who we would call deacons at this point. Deacon just means servant. It's talking about designating some people to serve to fulfill a particular task. Acts 14 and verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. So, what does it mean to summon the congregation? What does it mean select from among you? Is it whoever happens to be in attendance on a particular... If we're going to designate elders and deacons on some Sunday morning, whoever happens to attend that morning, if they meet the qualifications otherwise... They could be an elder or a deacon. That's the first time they've been here. Who gets to 
decide who is the congregation that, that decides whether or not someone meets those criteria. Um, and I, I realize that these questions probably seem silly and you're probably suppressing some groans and thinking, Joe, come on, give me a break here. <laughs> the, this stuff isn't relevant. These questions aren't relevant. Um, let's get real serious for a moment. So I'm aware of a situation a few years ago with a congregation. An individual was very upset with the congregation upset to the point where he did not want that congregation to continue to exist. And he was recruiting friends and family, I guess, trying to get people to agree to come on some particular Sunday, designate themselves members of the congregation, vote to disband the congregation so that they can get on with their lives. There is a lot of stuff wrong with that, right? <laughs> oh, we could go all night on what's wrong with that. His attitude, his thought of resolution, his perception of local membership, thinking it could be a unilateral decision. But I bring that up because I think our perception of these passages we've been looking at, responsibilities of elders, deacons, our responsibility to them, our perception of those passages is heavily influenced by, we have a clear idea of who's members. We have a clear idea that there's some boundaries on who's members. It's not some transient group of whoever happens to drift in and out from week to week. Now, I understand some people visit around and certainly if they're considering placing membership somewhere, absolutely, that's a serious decision. Visit, visit multiple places. Decide before you make that commitment. But long term, I think it's quite clear from Scripture that there's an underlying assumption that there's at least, I'm going to call it a little bit of formality to who's the members, who's the flock that the shepherds are responsible for. That needs to find, right? And all these passages that we've looked at. So as, as I keep coming back to it, you know, I'd suggest that the New Testament implies repeatedly there's this mutually agreed relationship. And we can call it placing membership, identifying with, associating with. Terminology, I, I don't think, is important because we're not you know, given firm terminology from Scripture. If you wanted to latch onto something from Scripture, then absolutely what what Saul did there when he was trying to associate with them. He'd use that term. But there is something there. And many of these instructions need that clarification in order for us to know how to apply them. Let's see. So, let's go off topic just a little bit. Talk a little bit more about the idea of elders and deacons, appointing elders and deacons. Scripture lays out the requirements to be an elder or a deacon. So who is eligible? Scripture covers that. What is their responsibility? Scripture covers that. What is the process to get someone into that role? So someone who has not been an elder or deacon them transitioning into that. How do you establish that they meet the qualifications? 
what does that look like? We don't get a definition of process from Scripture. When, when the text says that Paul appointed elders, the term appoint is chiritonio in Greek. It literally means to stretch forth the hand. It, it came to simply mean to appoint, to choose, or to ordain by any means. The Holy Spirit used a word which means to choose without regard to the details of the method. Right? The, the term tells us the final outcome, but the term does not tell us the intermediate steps. Acts 6.3, Titus 1.5, they use a synonym, kathistimi, which means to appoint a person to some position or service without regard to the means. See, the Holy Spirit has told us what we need to pay attention to. Who's qualified to be an elder or deacon? We're told that. We need to respect that. What their responsibilities are, we're told that. We need to respect that. The process of actually a church actually establishing elders and deacons, we're not told that. And so it's common when a church is going through that process for the preacher to make some comments about that and about how we're left to devise a process for ourselves. So we would like something you know, predictable, consistent, a lot of practical observations we could make here, something that's transparent and open. But the details themselves are not specified. So I said we're going off topic, but I think that same description applies to the idea of placing membership, right? We've got numerous passages that really need the membership to be defined in order for us to know how do we apply them. Who's the flock the elders are responsible for? When are you subject to the elders? We could go on. I think we could probably make a guess here. I think if we just scanned across Scripture looking for passages covering the relationship and responsibilities in that relationship, we could probably make a long list of things that, that also need that clarification. So we need that clarification. Paul gave us an example, but we really don't have a process. So what you typically find is that churches have a process they've come up with for recognizing when someone is a member. Uh, just like we have to come up with something for appointing elders, we need to come up with something for deciding who is and is not a member. And churches with elders, it would commonly be uh, the elders sit down and chat with someone if they've expressed interest in being a member there. Um, here we do that, just a brief conversation about bap uh, background, are they baptized? What we teach here, there's some variety sometimes in what churches of Christ teach, and so we want that to be clear. In churches without elders, there's often a similar conversation that may take place. Um, it might be the preacher, it might be someone else who talks to them. If we go back in time, 100, 150 years, communication was a lot more difficult. If questions come up, if concerns come up, resolving them, should we accept this person? Those questions could be a lot more difficult to answer back before communication became so easy. And so if we go back in time, wow, you can't read that at all. 
Oh, you can read it? Okay. The, the projector at the back of the room has a bit of fuzz. Okay. You may not be able to read the handwriting. If that's the case, don't worry, neither can I. Um, I had Marissa read it and I typed it out. So back in time, before communication became so quick and easy, a common practice was that when someone was moving, they would carry a letter from the church they had been attending, kind of vouching for them. This is a letter describing Marissa's great-grandmother. And I'll read this to you. December 15th, 1898. The White's Bend Congregation does hereby certify that Sister Ollie Whitaker is a worthy member of the Church of God and made a true and faithful member while here in our neighborhood. And we miss Sister Ollie very much. As Paul says, we are glad that we can recommend Sister Ollie to any congregation as the Church of God at any place of worship. Sister Ollie Whitaker obeyed the gospel of Christ under the preaching of Brother Kickwell and was baptized and was a faithful member. And we recommend her to the Church of God at Salem. Signed by three elders, W. Young, J. Brown, and A. Johnson. I wasn't alive way back when, but it's my understanding that that was a rather common practice 100, 200 years ago, that people would often um, carry some letter as they were moving to um, bring to the church where they're attending. Now, is that required? I, I, no, don't think so, but it seems to be a workable solution if, if they're needing to establish that. It's uncommon today. I am aware of some congregations still will reach out to the place where someone had previously attended. And they might do that as a matter of practice, just even if they know the person, still reach out. Um, so as I said, you, similar to the idea of you know, how exactly do we accomplish um, designating elders and deacons, the process is not specified in Scripture, so we need to find a process that fits everything we find in Scripture and works, something that's practical and something we can be consistent at. And so that's what we find. That's, I believe, the same situation we end up with, with the idea of placing membership. So make some applications here. As I mentioned, this topic does come up. There are some who would say there's no need to place membership anywhere. You can be a member at large. They may attend the same congregation consistently, but they just don't want to place membership. And they might resist the idea of doing that. So for that reason, I think it's good for us to be aware of what Scripture has to say on the matter. Also, it's good for us to think about what we do. The things we do as a church, we ought to be aware of. Where do those come from? Can we establish those in Scripture? As I mentioned, this is also essentially an application of the principles of determining Bible authority. There's no verse that says, thou shalt place membership at the congregation you consistently attend. It's not there. We see it repeatedly implied. I would suggest it's a necessary inference from some of those passages we were looking at that the membership needs to have some clarity on who is the membership. We see the example of Saul um, trying to place membership, or as the term there in the New American Standard reads, he tried to associate 
with them. He wanted to be associated with the congregation. So I would suggest there is ample evidence from Scripture for us to recognize this, that it, it is more than just some man-made tradition, that it is something that, that we ought to do. And hopefully, it, I don't know, I, broader use, broader value here might be just reminding us to be mindful of what we do, what we practice, where do those habits come from, and always be open to discussing them. If someone challenges something you do, you might get a little apprehensive or squirm a little, and we ought to respond more favorably than that and always be willing to reevaluate. Of course, local being recognized as a, a local member does not definitively state that you are a faithful Christian. We don't know what other people are thinking. We don't know what other people are doing when they're here. What matters first and foremost is our relationship with God. And does God consider you a member? Does God consider you a faithful Christian? So as we wrap up now, I'd encourage you to think about that. If anyone is here who, who is concerned about their relationship with the Lord, they need to make that right. They've not been baptized. They need to be baptized. If they've wandered away from, from following the Lord, they need to make that right with Him. And we'd encourage you, if anyone is subject to that, to make that known as together we stand and sing the invitation song. <laughs>